Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. Today, we've got Mark Weinstein with us on the show. Mark is president and founder of MJW Investments. We will talk about investing in student housing and the difference between managing student housing for multifamily. He also shares some specific methods to analyze deals and how the coaching program and building a platform help them to get more deals and grow. So without further ado, Mark Weinstein. All right. Today, we've got Mark Weinstein with us with MJW Investments. Mark, you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay, so I was a lawyer many, many moons ago. I'm a recovering attorney. And when I was in law school, <laughs> I discovered that real estate might be a better way to make money and to be able to do the philanthropy, you know, the way that I wanted to do it. So I, I got involved with some students at school saying, why don't you give me your student loan money, your work money, whatever money you have, let's buy a building. So bought a building in law school when I was about 22 years old and started buying apartments and then eventually graduated up to the development of some high rise loft redevelopment in downtown LA and did a bunch of other things with multifamily and migrated to being a larger owner of student housing. And we do most, mostly multifamily and student housing today. That's so you, you guys bought a building, you raised funds from other students who were pulling out student loans. Yeah, we, we were resourceful. We had not that we had negative net worth. We had to go to a bank and tell them that, oh, I don't have any assets, but trust me, I'm a good bet. Let me assume this loan. And we, that's how we did our first deal. It was the old days when you could go to actually a bank and there'd be a guy there and you, you sat across from them and you had to convince them to like do the deal with you. And so it was a five unit building. It was like four units in a little house. And we fixed it up ourselves. We did all the work ourselves. We did the accounting and all the different things. And it, so it all started in law school and people, there was actually a scene at law school where one of the girlfriends of one of the guys was trying to convince him not to give me the $2,000. There was like a whole argument in the hallway. And it was like a funny, it was a pretty funny thing actually. Like an episode of saved by the uh, bell. Did you, yeah, exactly. Was it in an area that you guys lived in it or was it strictly an investment property? It was an investment property, but it was by school. So theoretically, it could have turned into student housing. But in this particular case, it was just something available. We bought it, could add value to it. Awesome. Very, very So did you... <laughs> so you started investing while you were going to school for yeah. law. Did you end up practicing as an attorney very much? Or did you just go directly into real estate because you, you found this you know wonderful thing? Well, I did two years as a lawyer so I could satisfy my parents you know, saying, oh my God, why did you go to school all these years to do law? And then you go into real, what is this real real estate thing? My parents had no business background like that or investment background. So they were a little, you know, dismayed when their son who went all these years to law school, passed the bar, practiced law, and then he goes out into this thing called real estate. So I did practice a couple of years and then I, I got into doing apartments mostly at that time. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about some of 
the other deals that you did after your first deal, did you continue to invest like through college, through the beginning of your law career, or did you stop and then wait until a few years later and do your next deal? No, I kept on doing deals. And what ended up happening, and one of the things I always share with people is I had to make a decision at one point. I was doing trial work and some litigation, real estate related. And, you know, I always thought, you know, it was great to do some, a couple of deals a year, but I thought that as long as I had the crutch of getting a little bit of a salary and some bonuses, you know, would I ever really venture out? And so I believe that when I cut myself off from all the other sources of income and I had to make it, I went to do a development, creative office development in Old Town Pasadena, that really forced me to launch the career. And I think ultimately you're much more successful when you go for it. And so that's what ended up happening in my middle 20s. And I went for it. And the School of Hard Knocks, I learned through a development, you know, everything you could learn about development and housing and office and restaurants, retails. I learned from the School of Hard Knocks and I learned by just going for it. I love that. We just did an episode with Whitney Sewell. He's a syndicator out of the Southeast, kind of Georgia, Florida area. And he like shared, you know, his experience of he and his wife sold the farm. They sold everything and, you know, went all in. And I think they lived with their parents for a little bit or in the basement of a friend's apartment. And basically, you know, did the same thing that you did. Just went all in, you know, got rid of all of their sources of income and enforced themselves to be successful. And it's amazing how resilient human beings are when it comes to survival. So I hear similar stories often when, you know, cutting off the salary and and going for it. So I love hearing that. So Mark, tell us a little bit about like, what were some of the challenges that you went through when you lost that income? Like what hurdles did you have to face? I know that you said you had like, you know, the knowledge of like figuring out development, but like kind of how did that affect you and like really, you know, keep your perseverance up and not just kind of like throw in the towel and go back to the salary? Well, it was stressful because, you know, I had to find a way to make money. And the, the fortunate thing was Ed owned and was buying some apartment buildings, which gave me a little bit of income. The development obviously was a net negative. And what ended up happening is that I had a partner who was supposed to be the contractor developer type guy. And I was the money guy, the guy that figured out the historic stuff and some of the other stuff. And I ended up having to take over the project because he went a hundred percent over budget. I had to get a hard money loan. You know, the loan was in my name, the hard money loan was in my name. And I had to basically save and resurrect the project, get it finished, get it leased up and eventually move on from that. And it obviously, you know, one of the things that it did is it interfered with my great business of buying apartments you know, the development took a lot of time, it took me away from some of the opportunities that I had. So the opportunity cost was really great in doing that development. And today you said you focus on student housing and multifamily still? Or do you yeah, still? We're, we're, no, I'm not doing much development. I did another even larger development, which we could talk about. I did several really, really, really large developments. But for the most part, we do value add multifamily and multi-states. And we're in 10 states with the student housing and major schools, major markets near the schools and, you know, light value add to more extensive value add. And, you know, we, we try not to be the four seasons. We try to give value and be and one of our largest amenities should be walking distance to school. So 
your first development and that, you know, was kind of away from your core focus of value add apartments. AJ and I also started a brewery in 2011, kind of during our career of doing value add on single family and small multifamily. And, you know, just the opportunity cost of drifting away from what we were doing extremely successfully. It's just immeasurable what that opportunity cost was, but it was a lot of fun. And, you know, still is a lot of fun, even though we did lose a little bit of money, it changed our lives for the better. So, and it's still a great conference room, but that just really rang true when you're talking about that development. It's just like, Oh my gosh. So is that what you learned from kind of that first development is that you wish that you just stuck with what you were doing really well? I escalated later in my career and I upped the ante. So I was doing 10 buildings in downtown LA, which is rather large, 800,000 feet myself and turning industrial buildings, historic ones into lofts and mixed use pools, golf, basketball on the roof, underground parking, intermodal parking structure I built, did creative office, 550 units, 100,000 feet of retail, food court market. So I did all that. So that sounds pretty big. and That's going to be distracting for multifamily. So that wasn't enough. Then I took on 23 acres, same time, 23 acres, 1.8 million square foot building that I bought a mile and a half east of downtown LA. And that was going to be this, you know, $750 million project. So I'm doing all these projects. I didn't get any private equity. I was basically exchanging things into it. I was using my cash flow from my apartments to fund, you know, stuff. Some of the stuff that I was doing downtown was I rented. So, and some of it was selling as condo. So I had all these things going on at once and it was all going really well. And then in 2007, I saw the world changing and I wanted to get out of the larger development because I saw the writing on the wall and I couldn't because there was lawsuits that Sears was involved and I got tangled and I won the lawsuit seven years later, but I lost the market. And the opportunity cause there was life-changing. It just, I missed so many great opportunities. You know, I've done very well. I had a really great portfolio of apartments. I had great student housing and that all did well. And that saved me, you know, to be able to fund all the negative cash flow for all the years I had to hold the stuff. But as I tell people, the loss of money there wasn't a big deal. It was the opportunity cost because I was doing so well buying apartments. You know, I did so well doing student housing. I made a lot of money for a lot of people, mostly myself, but also I took a few investors in and everybody did really well. And when I stuck to my core knitting, I did way better and I got a lot done. And, and what people tend to not focus on is that it's not that you lose money in a particular deal or not. I didn't lose anybody's money except my own, but I lost the opportunity to do all the things that were really making me a lot of money or much, much simpler, much more my core competency and, and much more controllable because you weren't, you weren't dealing with empty buildings or building. You, you had existing income producing properties that are making rent payments. And you know, for the most part, other than pandemics, you, there's a current, pretty current cash flow on that. That is definitely, my dad always used to tell us that everybody needs a home. Like everybody, everybody needs to go somewhere, but not every business needs to have a retail space. I mean, we've certainly seen that with the pandemic here right now, right? Like it's been pretty crazy. So I guess kind of seeing that downturn, like what do you think you could have, do you have any insights as to what you could have done differently or what maybe something that could have been, you could have done better to position yourself better or other than just like focus on your niche? 
I mean, I, well, I, I hear that for sure. I actually think that we executed really well. We had like things like Target and supermarkets and everything lined up. We were doing housing retail. I think we did all the right things. We did charrettes. We invested lots of money in plans and, and we had like major contracting companies. We were paying major money to do things and design charrettes and we got the community involved. I think that we actually were a model of execution as to a project if the economy was different. So I, I think I did all the right things, but I still would say that, you know, every time I've gotten involved in major development, whether I've made a lot of money or not, it never would have been as profitable just sticking to the core thing that I do well. Yeah. And the core thing that you're doing well is like, you know, buying something up and then not necessarily development, but just like adding value. It's, that's yeah, sometimes right? it's, as you guys know, sentence is simple as, a mom and pop owner sells you a project. They didn't manage it well. You manage it better. Sometimes it's emptying the building and doing all that. They range, you know. We like cash flow. And some of the family office and investors that invest with me are aligned in wanting safe cash flow, long-term. You know, I'm agnostic whether we sell it or keep it. I usually do keep things long-term. but So I'm very aligned with other family offices because I have no, I don't have to sell. And we just, we look for, you know, what's the downside risk in a market? And we look at things from, from a long-term perspective. And over time, with the tax benefits that you get, the cash flow and everything, and like you said, people always need homes. Multifamily has been a great place to be. Let's kind of dive into your specific methods of adding value and, and kind of driving NOI up. You mentioned better management, you know, completely emptying out a building, but like, how do you, you know, analyze a deal and then kind of find those opportunities for increasing NOI? Well, first thing is about relationships. You know, almost all the deals we've bought have been relationship. In fact, I've rarely ever in my career bought billions of dollars of body truly marketed deal by a major company. It's usually, it might be a major broker occasionally bringing me something or a lightly marketed deal. But for the most part, the basis that you get in, you know, you make your money on your buy. So we're changing that a little bit, looking for value add. And of course, it might change. But the past history, if you look at all the buildings, especially the student housing, $500 million of student housing, $600 million now, none of them have ever been from a highly marketed deal. So first thing is basis. So I, I try to get something at a good basis using my reputation for closing and balance sheet or whatever else that we have to offer in a market and with relationships or people that know who we are. And so you get the basis right. So, so there, when you buy it right, you have room to screw up. <laughs> you buy it right and you go in and there's physical obsolescence, there's operational obsolescence, and you know, there's different things. And so we look at each thing to see where can we drive value. We start with, okay, what's a similarly situated property that's been rehabbed? What are they getting for rent? What are you getting? What's the delta? You know, if we spend money, what are we going to make on the money? And we look at that kind of stuff and we try not to financially engineer it just because interest rates are low. We try to look at things as does this make sense the way it is now. So it's a lot of things like that that we look at. We also, not, not as part of our investment, whether we do the deal or not, but we also do look at the tax benefits. You know, on a personal level, I like to get the depreciation. So that's a separate thing. It's kind of like the bonus for me, but I, I don't, it doesn't drive me buying the deal, but it's just something, it's something that makes me want to invest more of my money every year in multifamily so that I can take advantage of cost segregation and, you know, be able to write off a lot the first year. Every time I do new deals every year, I get to write off a lot the first year because of cost seg. 
I was explaining to a friend this morning, yeah. she was asking about, you know, my taxes. And I'm like, well, you know, every time we buy a new property, that cost segregation produces a large loss. And generally that's going to offset most of the income that we have. And it was really difficult for her to understand. And I was like, and that's why I really love buying real estate. <laughs> But I agree, you got to buy it at a great basis. And I also love kind of that forcing the appreciation up through the value add methods that you're, you're talking about. So what is your favorite way to add value? One thing that we've been successful, and this is just kind of an example, is during escrow, when we bought properties, been able to reset the rents and the whole leasing in escrow, so by the time we close, we're already well on our way to executing a plan. I like having all my bids and things for rehab done while I'm in escrow, so the day we close, we can start construction. I just like being prepared. I like reletting all the contracts, you know, trying to get things, you know, better, cheaper, better service, less cost. You know, I try to do utility audits. You know, I try to go through every aspect of operations and say, how can we do this better, faster? And try to use, you know, I'm in the Young Presidents group and I used my organization for all kinds of different things to help, you know, operate things better. I'm the national chair of multifamily for YPO. So I, in wow. particular, have it's kind of one of those things you do good, you get good. I get a lot of access to things because I'm involved with all of them. So if I need to have, like I needed a contractor that could do unit re renovations in different markets. And so one of the big companies that does apartment buildings told me, oh, here's where we use these different markets. They're very cost effective just in doing unit renovations and exterior renovations. That saved me a lot of time. And I'll find resources like that in every market and everything that we do. And those people might get involved in the, when we're buying the property, helping us analyze, okay, here's what we're going to have to spend. Then we have to figure out, okay, what rent can we get? And we can do all that stuff before we ever close the deal. So we're ready to go once we close. That's actually how we connected. And so I'm in EO and you're in YPO and we connected through the deal exchange. For anybody on the call, you know, the Young Presidents Organization and the entrepreneur organization that you're involved with are, it's an amazing fellowship. It's an amazing opportunity to, of men and women that support each other. I've been in it over 20 years and I've gotten so much out of it. And a lot of what I got out of it was beyond real estate. It was just personal development, mentorship you know, kind of internally within my group to learn to be the best version of myself and, you know, and really be able to spread that to our organization and our culture. And so I got a lot of lifelong friendships out of it, but also some great business resources and advice. I will second that having only been a member for a few years, meeting other members who have been involved in the organization for a long time, share the same mindset and attitude and that relationship building aspect is incredible. So yeah, AJ, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say during escrow, do you actually take, are you able to convince the owners to let you take over management for it? Or do you just, are you talking about just getting like all the documents prepared? No, or, I'm talking, no, AJ, I'm talking about getting in there and actually doing the leasing. You have to have yeah. a little bit of luck, a little bit of charm, <laughs> you know, and a little bit more luck you'll find a few people that let you do that. And in student housing, it was particularly important because it's seasonal. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's the a season for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you set the rates. And so if I would have let him or her go a little farther, I wouldn't be able to hit my first year numbers because they're going to be leasing at these lower rates because, you know, they had lower rates. And, and so my ability, like I'm doing it right now as we speak on a large project in Utah on a student deal. You know, I made friends with the seller. It's the second deal we bought from him. And it's about a $50 million deal. And, you know, through the relationship, he agreed, he trusts me. And so he, he agreed to let us. And so we're right now in the middle of pre-leasing at higher rates with our new manager. And we're still closing in a few weeks from now. But I don't want to exaggerate that it happens all the time. That's the exception, not the rule. But I do. Tr- that's one of the things you said, what are my favorite things? That's one of my favorite things to do. And I did it one time on a shopping center. And they told me that eventually if I leased up, you know, a certain space, they'd give me a higher loan, a B loan, you know, and I leased it while I was in escrow. So they had to give me a 90 Incentivized. loan. Yeah. So, so I, I negotiated stuff. That, I knew, I knew that really I makes the deal good. Yeah. So they won't do those kind of loans anymore, but I did that. And I was really proud of myself. Yeah, that's awesome. So for our listeners too, I mean, I know you said that the student housing has like a seasonal kind of arena to it. Can you tell us more about like what the difference is between student housing and just regular multifamily? I mean, sure. even for Chris and I, like we haven't done student housing at all. And I'd be curious to know kind of a little bit more of the interworkings and, and how that, like, what are the differences? Well, the first thing is multifamily people per se shouldn't do it. It's, it's a lot different. It's an operational business, it's running a hotel. <laughs> And to be honest with you, the pricing on student housing is so similar to multifamily right now. It makes no sense when you have a choice to do student over multifamily because your the cap rates should be different and they're not. So we're, that's why we're doing a lot more regular multifamily, number one. Number two, so the operational. So you're almost running like a limited service hotel. You have to provide a lot more things and activities. Your leasing is premised on a 12-month lease, even if they're not there 12 months, you're getting them to sign a 12-month lease with parental guarantees. And you have to get a certain momentum. Right when they move in, you got to be leasing for the next year already. And if you miss that leasing thing, you could be screwed for the whole year. Whereas in regular multifamily, you have a bad month, you could recover. You can't always recover with student housing. So it could be really bad. And in fact, the pandemic really you know, made that even worse in some schools. And so you have to really be careful. And there's a lot more sensitivity on rates because if you miss your, you know, your leasing, you're going to have to lower rates a lot and give a lot more concessions. You know, it is way harder than regular housing. And the reason why I got into it was because I thought it was recession resilient. And I think it is if you're at the right school, but it's really a tough business. And you got to specialize in that kind of management. And it's hard. It's harder. Yeah. Can you elaborate more on like how the pandemic has affected it? And I'm surprised that, I mean, are cap rates still currently about the same or is there going to be some opportunities in student housing? Well, like there's opportunities in anything. For me, it's at the wrong school, wrong place. (laughs) But in actuality, at great schools that were walking distance that were big schools like I'm at, they did well. The schools that didn't do well were, number one, properties that were farther away from campus Two, if there was already overbuilding, three, smaller universities or secondary universities. So it was the winners and losers. So there was the haves and have-nots. And there absolutely would be some opportunity, but you would want to be an expert in management to take that on because even I won't take it on and I know what I'm doing because number one, I'm not getting paid enough for the risk. It's just, it just not. 
And when I do buy regular student housing, it really is similar cap rates. And it shouldn't be, and it has been, because there's a lot of institutional desire for it, mostly in, in class A, but even in class B, it just, it's expensive. And so that's why, you know, by default, that's why I've been buying the multifamily more because I'd rather for the same risk buy the multifamily. Yeah, student housing sounds a lot harder than, I guess, regular property management and, you know, investing in multifamily. So when you're looking at a student housing project, you know, what are the differences in the, in the value add? You mentioned a little bit on rates and leasing and making sure that you're hitting the seasonality right. But are there differences on renovations and kind of adding amenities that you normally wouldn't add at apartments? You know, obviously study areas are a lot bigger for students. You know, it's really changing. I think the pandemic will change whatever my answer would be. But I think that you have to be more careful on renovations because you might not get the payback, you know, that you do with multifamily. And it's somewhat similar. You just have to judge your audience what they'll pay for. And also, they're a lot more sensitive to some of the extras you might charge at an apartment building. You know, you might find, especially at some schools and some price points, a lot more sensitivity on different charges. Okay. So changing subjects a little bit, from the very, very beginning of your career, when you bought your first deal, you were raising money from friends and from other investors. Like, at what point did that change to where you were, you know, getting more serious about, you know, maybe reaching out to family offices or, you know, just kind of like getting that fundraising in gear to where you can actually do like bigger, larger deals? I think first thing I did is I put every penny I could into it myself and refinanced a lot, used my own capital, grew something. And people saw how, how I was doing. People started asking me, could they invest with me? And so it was really more of others asking me and then me letting in some family offices and people. And also because of the fact that I wasn't just trying to make a promote, like I didn't care when I sold you know, they saw, well, he's kind of aligned with me because our family wants the depreciation. We want the cash flow. We don't need to realize the profit. I also did 64, 1031 exchanges. So they liked the idea that I was very tax efficient, did a lot of exchanges and, you know, they wanted to sell, I could, but I didn't need to. And so that worked really well. And then, you know, just, it was more of a fact is that I always had more, you know, I needed to put a lot of money in the deals for myself. And so I didn't have a lot of capacity. So the more I didn't offer it, the more they wanted it. So I kind of got a lot of people to keep on waiting to get into our deals. Now we're able to do a few more deals and we'll probably let some new investors in. But for the most part, we would allocate. So we have a deal and send an email saying, you get 500,000, you get 750, you get 100, you know, and pretty much tell them, this is what I can give you on this deal. And, you know, I even had fights where you know, my wife invested over her own money in the deals and some of my friends were saying, can't you take a hundred from her? Can't you, you know, I said, I'm not going to take a hundred thousand from my wife. You, 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 yeah, yeah, but you want to live with her? You know I mean? So kind of funny is I had a, an opposite problem of most people's. I didn't have enough deals, but I had a lot of capital. And not that there's so many deals now, but we have a really great acquisition department and we're, we're all, I'm also not being quite as picky. I was shooting for the moon before and now I'm I'm still shooting for good, but I'm actually really more lighter value add because I can't get paid for the extensive value add. And, you know, I'm adjusting my reality a little bit and being more realistic. And so I can do a few more deals 
under that scenario than, than what I was shooting for before. If someone was starting out and, you know, investing everything that they have into the projects that they're doing right now, what experience can you share, you know, through that period, like to kind of generate those, I guess, friendships and referrals and that network to where you've got a waiting list for your investments? I think it becomes your track record. You know, we have a really good track record. You start buying things. What I just did, I didn't really think about it. I didn't have any mentors. So I just like kind of plowed into it. Just kept on buying everything I could get my hands on when the time was right. I picked times when I really, it was really clear that these deals made sense. I didn't have to stretch. Like right now to buy a deal, most people are stretching. There's too much capital out there. There's too many people chasing deals. And you have to learn, sometimes the best deal you do are the ones you don't do. And we're all, you know, even at any stage in your career, we're all impatient to do more. We like deals. And so you have to kind of show some discipline. You got to have a great track record. You got to be honest. You got to be a good communicator when things are good or when things aren't good. And you lead by example. And I think that also my involvement in philanthropy in the community, unintended result is that people share your passion in, in, in doing these activities on the outside. And those people are likely to people that will probably invest with you because you share some interest in the community and it's sincere that they'll sniff out if it's somebody being insincere, just coming to these things to, to meet investors or deals. But if you're really sincere and you do great in the community, I really do think it comes back to you. And I'll tell you the greatest deal I ever made is I, I never had a mentor. And so I mentored like 20 people. And this one woman I mentored, she said to me when she was done, well, Mark, you've been so great you know, helping me learn about real estate. What could I do for you? And I said, as a joke, find me a wife. And I was kind of kidding. And she took it seriously, asked me a bunch of questions, sent me a questionnaire and all those different things. And she ends up introducing me to my wife. So there you go. That was the best deal I ever made, <laughs> you know, and it comes back. I think and I just want to use the example that when you do good things, great things come back. And so I think for everybody, just do good in the community, be a good person and it's infectious and gets others to do things. And I do a lot of philanthropy with other real estate people. And those are the guys and gals that have been my best friends for all these years. And we've done a lot of things together and that, all that helps. And a lot of the people that I've mentored over the years want to partner with us. And so, so we also started a program where we were doing these co-GPs where we'll take somebody, not on a project basis, but on a person basis. So we want to grow someone's platform and we'll co-invest as a GP with them and help raise the equity on some deals when the deals are large enough. And sometimes we put it in, sometimes we get other people to put it in, but that's been another platform that's been able to help us, you know, see more great deals from, you know, great sponsors that we, we don't do that a lot. We, we pick the people and then we, we follow them. We don't pick the deals. I like that a lot. Mark, do you want to share a little bit about your philanthropy? I'm, I'm interested to hear, you know, just kind of what, what you've been doing and yeah. Okay, sure, I'll tell you a little bit. We give back. Okay, so in reverse order, the homelessness is a big crisis, you know, all, all around. And so we started a nonprofit dealing with trans transitional housing where we're doing this modular housing. We can put it on land that we can get for a year or two and we can provide all the services, mental health services and other services, showers, baths, everything, and a unit to families. And so that's something where we're raising private money to, to do that. I was just on the phone with some of the elected officials trying to unwind what is a terrible system we have in California. So that's a very big initiative that I'm working on. 
other things is that when the camps burned down during the fires, the summer camps that I went to as a kid and got a scholarship, I was the lead gift to help rebuild the camp. And, we'll, and I'm the architectural committee, so I'm helping with that because that had a profound effect to me being involved in the community and giving back was that opportunity to go there. And then I'm also involved in a lot of stuff in the Jewish community, kind of with the minority community, like the relationships between the communities and, and fostering understanding and making partnerships between churches and the Congress people and the Jewish community. And just, so everybody kind of understands each other's needs. And so I've been doing that for a lot of years. And then I'm involved in APAC, which is a group that helps lobby in Washington, D.C. for a better partnership between Israel and the United States and sharing of all the technologies that, that Israel has in the United States and helping build that partnership. And then a lot of things like the City of Hope for Cancer. And, it go, and the list goes on. I'm, I'm involved and on the board of a lot of different charities. And I, I tend to try to see, can I make a difference? Can I leverage things? And we started various real estate venture philanthropy groups where I got some of the bigger presidents of real estate to get together with me we do RFPs to charities where if we think we can grow them and not just pay for their negative operations and make them do a new program or do something more or, or replicate themselves, we'll invest in those things for philanthropy and, you know, and we also, and also mentorship programs. Since I didn't have a mentor, I helped start various mentorship programs, formal programs where we give them education and do things. And it's a year long commitment and we pay for the education and some of the stuff and some trips they take. And so that's just, few of the things that I do and I'm passionate about it. It's, it's a labor of love to do these things. That is a lot. And it's extremely a big part of my life. (laughs) Big part. It's always been a big part of my life. That's why I stayed single so long probably because I didn't have time for a wife. That is really, really cool. And then you mentioned your CoGP platform as well. Do you want to share a deal or an experience that you've had with that? Sure. So a management company that we worked with in Utah, who became really good friends with, one of my big things with them, you know, is trying to grow them to, to get involved in ownership. And I always made them invest, even though it was a little bit in all our deals. And several years ago, they introduced me to the seller of this student housing project that we are buying now. And I said, you know, you guys, you know, help make their introduction. So you guys, you know, we'll put up your share of the co-GP money. And, you know, in this particular case, we raised most of the money and we, sh- we shared the GP. We, we have the majority in this particular case because we did a lot more of the work, but we gave them a piece of it. That, that's a little bit unusual because usually it's a company that all they do is buy stuff and they're at an inflection point where, okay, they're, they're really good in a niche in a particular area. They have more deals than they can actually fund. And there's the GP side of it that is substantial, the money they'd have to put up to do these deals. And we put up 90% of the GP money and get, half, let's say, 45% of the GP. And then the LP, either our group or a group we recruit or investors that we know or something, you know, will get more favorable LP money, however it comes from, than they would get on their own. Because our balance sheet, our track record, who we are, will attract better debt and better equity. So they know they're better off. And also all the experiences that I have through good and bad times helps them grow as an organization. And we look at organizations as, as opposed to like, oh, here's one good deal. We want someone who has a pipeline so that it's worth all the effort it takes to get to know them, work with them, and then we help grow their platform and we all do very well. That's- that sounds like a great platform and a great way to like build relationships and network and 
It's a win-win. It's a total win-win. And also, it gives us access to deals and markets that we're not experts in. So our co-GPs are our boots on the ground in that area. It's a true partnership. We really do try to grow each other in every way. And it really does work because they really do do more. And they don't feel like they're giving anything up because they're doing so much more. And they're not having to worry about the GP side of the equation at all. And they also, in a sense, can relax more about equity, even though they might be a little involved in it. You know, we most likely could attract better debt and equity than many ways. And so it, it all ends up, everything, you know, ends up being better and they do more. Yeah, I like it. And we get deals that we otherwise wouldn't get. Yeah, and markets that you probably wouldn't, may not get into too. Or not experts in. Did you find these guys buying a deal in that market or how did that kind of come about? A lot of times it's relationships. People, you know, know that we do this and they'll say, hey, you know, there's this guy in LA, he's really good. Hey, there's this guy in Dallas, he's really great. And, and you guys should know each other. And so sometimes other professionals put us together. Sometimes we've posted things on LinkedIn saying that we're looking and we interviewed, we probably talked to like 200 people. And we go, we have a whole process that we go through at our company to, to you know, vet people. And it takes a while, but it's, it's a good process. And so it's sort of a variety of different ways. But again, in some way, it's connected with people who know people, because even if it's done through LinkedIn, we're still getting to references of people that know us and they check us out, we check them out. It's all about the network that really makes things you know, work. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've definitely built a great base. And from there, this platform allows you to really kind of spread out and like spread those wings and probably affect a lot more people in the process. Yeah, definitely. And it's fun. You get to, you get to yeah. meet people and, and develop relationships. And, you know, and I didn't have a mentor or anybody to help me. So in other ways, it's part, part of the thing is a little bit of me being able to, to give back what I've learned and my experiences, both good and bad, to, to help someone have a good experience. Nice. That's awesome. Well, Chris, what do you think? Are we getting time for the last four questions? It's about that time, Mark. This has been really good. AJ, why don't you dive in there with that first question? All right. First one is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? I think that getting a mentor, it would be great instead of just diving into being in real estate when you don't know anything, is have a mentor that you can talk to that you can learn from their gray hair, like my gray hair, and the school of hard knocks and and try to be a, a sieve and get everything you can and find that first person that has gone through it all and help you build your career. Okay. One thing Chris and I have started doing is partnering with some of our brokers here in town. And that has been absolutely fun watching them succeed and get into more real estate investing and really just promote the business. Like there is something about giving back as a mentor too, that is really awesome. And uh, I, I believe that we are definitely helping them out along the way. That's great. Cool. So I guess having done your first deal in law school, raising funds from other students and their debt, the student loans. Before that though, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I used to wash cars when I was a little kid. And sometimes I get other kids to work for me and and wash the cars and I'd make a piece of the action. So, or collecting (laughs) bottles and turning them in. So I, I always organized other people to do stuff with me and kind of syndicated it out a little bit. So even when I was little, I was, I was doing things like that. You were born with it. I don't know. 
Well, I know that we heard a lot about your formal training, but this next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, you know, having been a lawyer, I think one of the great things about it, I wouldn't go to law school just to get the information, but if you happen to go there, he teaches you when you need to hire lawyers. It's definitely cut down on our docs. Like I feel more comfortable having our people do, you know, modifications to a lot of our documents that would otherwise be legal fees. And I think the informal training is, you know, just kind of learning by doing, being hands-on. I think that a lot of people, you know, I don't love the details anymore, but I had to do them all to learn every aspect of the business. Like people should know from property management all the way to finance. You can't say enough about learning every aspect of the business. I completely agree with that. Even just having a decent amount of knowledge so that you actually know what the professional you hire is doing just so that you can audit them a little bit is key or, you know, building up enough uh, like knowledge to where you could do it yourself, but you prefer to hire someone who's better at it to do it. That's a great point. What you just said is, is delegating out to someone who can do it better, even though you know it because they can do it more cost effectively or, or just, you, know, you can leverage yourself. That's a very important point. Yeah. Okay. And our final question, what was your Moby Dick, the deal or opportunity that got away? Deal that got away. That's a tough question. I just know one, one particular, it's not a big deal, but I'll give you an example of something that we talk about a lot. It's a really small deal, but it was like a 40 unit deal. And I'll tell you something I did and why I lost it. So a broker calls me and says, hey, there's this deal around the corner from something you already own. And you, you know, just make a 10 day all cash deal. And, you know, they're asking 3.9, you know, which is really a good deal for years ago. And I said, I'll offer 4.2, but I'm going to take 30 days. And I didn't need 30 days. I could have closed it in 10 days. I ended up losing the deal to somebody that did 10 days, 3.9. I tried to counter when I heard they weren't going to accept my offer. No, I heard they weren't going to counter me. I tried to quickly counter and say 10 days, but I blew it. And so if I hadn't been cute, and I just did what I was told to do, I would have got the deal. And we talk about that all the time. People say, stop talking about that deal. But that's a deal I lost by being too cute. Earlier, you also mentioned that, I don't know if it was you said you learn a lot from the deals that you don't do, or you, or you gain a lot from the deals that you don't do, or, or like keep... No, I say some of the best deals that you do are the ones you don't do. Yes. Because often you don't make the mistake you made the right decision, you didn't do it. And that frees you up to do so many other great things. And so I think it's always your time is a commodity. And getting involved in a bad deal can make you go sideways, you worry about it, you'll get all engrossed in that bad deal. And all these good deals that you could have done will be around and you'll miss them. Yeah, that's uh, a well, little nugget. Well, Mark, it's been awesome chatting with you. We really thank you for being on. If our listeners want to maybe learn more about you or get a hold of you, do you have anywhere to point them to go? They should go to our website, mjwinvestments.com. All the information's on there. You can learn more about the company, send us information, and ask questions. Thank you again, Mark. It's really been fun chatting with you. Very educational as well. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.